Well, if you have your Bibles, you might turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 or look on with me in your bulletin as we consider these first uh, three verses of this well-known section of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount, and maybe even more particularly these first 12 verses known as the Beatitudes. As many of you will be aware, that word beatitude is simply a word that means blessing. As I was preparing uh, this message on Friday and then some yesterday as well, I was sitting at our dining room table, and if you sit at our dining room table on the very edge of our dining room table and you're looking at the wall that's ahead of you, you have a placard, a, a piece of decoration that sits on the wall and it just says two words, simply blessed. That's what, they, that's what it says right there on the wall that I was staring at the whole time as I was preparing for this message. And I thought to myself, I don't know what we were thinking when we put necessarily that on the wall, but I'm not sure that it would be exactly what it is that the Lord Jesus Christ has in mind in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, which will be our focus this morning. And I don't think it's probably what any of us tend to think of when we come to the idea of blessing. Um, and I think what makes this section of Scripture somewhat unique is that the description of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is it really is, as we talked about last week, an upside-down kingdom, which is to say that it's a right-side-up kingdom, but it's not in the way that we would look at it through worldly eyes. And so what part of the effort and the work and labor that's needed as we look at Matthew 5 uh, verse 3 specifically this morning is, Lord, give us the eyes to see uh, with the Spirit of God through the lens of the kingdom that Christ has come to bring so that we might fall in love with the things that you call blessings that immediately to us may not seem like blessings so that we can truly know what it means to be the blessed of God. That's our focus as we look today in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we have read your word in your presence, as we have focused our hearts this morning upon the astonishment of the fact that we are here in your presence through the power of the Holy Spirit, we know that it is your intention to bless us as your people. And we would desire for the words that have just been read uh, to be more than simply uh, words on a page uh, removed from our heart and lives. We ask that you would inscribe the reality of these words now through your Spirit upon us as we look at this word together. For that to happen, we're going to need that Pentecostal Spirit to come and to renew us and refresh us. So come down, Holy Spirit. Dwell among us. Open up our lives to you. Bed down the defenses that so easily rise within us. And let this time truly be holy unto you, giving to you glory and doing to us eternal and transformative good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, it's nine times here in Matthew chapter 5 where we hear the word makarios or the word blessed. That's used here in the Sermon of the Mount, a description of what the blessed life looks like. Some translators, when they look at Matthew chapter 5, they don't, they don't focus on the word blessing, but in fact move to the word happy. Some of you may have looked at the Good News translation, for instance, and, and others who move from the word blessed to the word happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Um, there's something um, uh, to be um, recognized as, as good about noting that happiness is something that should come through the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think the spirit of that translation doesn't quite get the heart of what Jesus is after. Happiness is our emotional response to something. It's, it's the subjective uh, side of, of that blessing. Jesus here in the midst of this is saying, no, this is blessing whether you're happy about it or not. It's much more objective in its nature. You, you may not be happy about it, but it's still a blessing. <laughs> Whether you know it or not, there's something more objective that's in mind. And what, why that's important is that this is Jesus the King. This is Jesus the King inaugurating the kingdom, giving, as we said last week, something of a constitution for what it means to live in this kingdom that's not of this world. And so as the king speaks, he doesn't say, see if this feels like a blessing to you. It's not suggestive in that way. It's blessed is, blessed are. This is the nature of things. This is the truth of the matter. Now, it should be that we... Well, that we are happy about his blessings and that we get happy about the blessings that he gives us. But isn't it often true that the blessings that the Lord brings into our lives don't feel very blessing-like to, to us? I mean, there are times where our, our job, which is a great blessing, doesn't feel much like a blessing. To be honest, our, our families, they're great blessings, but sometimes they don't feel like great blessings. We're not particularly happy uh, about them. We ought to be, but we're not. And sometimes those things that God describes blessing don't immediately have the subjective response of giddiness in the life of the believer. And yet when that happens, here should be our default recognition. The problem is not in the blessings, but in us. The problem is in us. And in fact, the very first of the Beatitudes speak in some sense to the problem in us. And recognizing that problem in us as, as something that in the kingdom that is not of this world, the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating, the problem that is a part of us, this poorness of spirit, this poverty of spirit, this weakness, this inability, in the kingdom of God is actually a blessing. Now, that's not a very flattering thing to say. To say, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. In fact, many have stumbled, even troubled over Jesus' words as he kicks off what it means to be a blessing here in the spirit. How is it that being poor in spirit is, is a blessing? How can that, that be? Well, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great um, preachers of the 20th century at Westminster Chapel in London, England, wrote maybe one of the best works on the Sermon on the Mount, certainly one of the finest treatments in the last hundred years or so, now argues that the Beatitudes as a structure have a definite order to them. 
that there's a deep meaningfulness in not just the content of the Beatitudes individually, though we're looking at them and giving them individual treatment, but they actually have a collective connection that there's a flow and an order to them that if they get out of order, if we don't understand them in order, we actually miss some of the magic, some of the marvel and beauty of what it is that Jesus is teaching us. And he says one of the characteristics, one of the leading characteristics here in this very first one is everything flows from Beatitude number one. We can't get to any of the other Beatitudes unless we first understood, understand Beatitude number one. Blessed are the poor in the spirit. And, and because that's the case, several questions really arise. Because it's not language that we use very often. What is it that Jesus means when he says poor in the spirit? What, how do you know you've got poorness of, of spirit? What is poorness of spirit actually good for? Why is it a blessed estate? And how is it can we get it? All right, I think those should be questions that each and every one of us should have kind of on the top of our hearts as we approach this subject of poor of spirit. You know, what is it? What's it good for? How do we know if we've got it? And how do, how do we get it? How do we sustain it, we might even ask. Now, I want to address those questions a bit in turn as we go through reflections on the poor, this blessedness is the poor of the Spirit, in hopes that the Lord would actually begin to grant us this gift, this blessed estate, in greater measure. Of course, to answer those questions, we have to start by defining some terms that way. We have to define the word poor. When the word poor that's being used here in the text is actually a word that has more to do with posture, interestingly. It's a word that's used to cringe or, or, or to cower, uh, to be in a position of, of lowness. It's actually referring to the, to the posture of a beggar, someone who's living life low to the earth, underneath everyone else, in a, in a position of, of neediness. And the word, if it's, as it's used in the New Testament, is not a mere, um, you know, this is someone who barely scrapes by. You know, there's a little more month than money at the end of the month. You know, that kind of, a, kind of a thing. It's not that they're just barely scraping by. It's actually a picture of destitution. A picture that a person makes their livelihood by a beggared existence. So as you're, as you're driving in, in Nashville and outlying areas and you see people holding up signs on the side of the road and they're gaining their existence through you handing a few dollars in their direction or taking care of them, that's exactly the picture that Jesus has in mind with regards to the poor in spirit. But he's not talking about physical poverty don't misunderstand him as some have. In fact, some of our um, older monastic uh, communities in the Middle Ages uh, took vows of poverty, in many ways describing what they believed to be something of what Jesus was urging spiritually upon uh, the church in the Beatitudes. But that's really not the focus of the text. It's not financial because he defines it as being poor in spirit. It's a spiritual poverty that's being described. Now, when he uses the language of being poor in spirit, he's indicating that he's talking about the internal operating of a person's heart, what the Apostle Paul would call the inner man. This is the part of us that perceives or judges or feels and, and desires, that assesses things. The, the poor in spirit, it has something to do with the, the internal, not the external. It, it doesn't have to do with with our bank accounts. It has to do with our, 
our sense of, of bankruptcy, spiritually speaking, of the internal kind. Uh, if we put it in that light and we understand it in that light, what really this text is drawing us to do and to ask us is what is your own personal assessment of yourself? It's drawing that kind of question up in your mind. What is your own personal assessment of yourself? It, who do you really think you are internally? What does the voice inside your head tell you about you? What, what does that voice say about you? That is the question of whether you're poor in spirit or not. Does the voice inside of you, when you look at yourself, what do you see? Do you see someone who's strong, smart, capable, better than the average, self-reliant, self-confident, got the world by its tail? What do you see? Or do you see someone who's weak, needy, helpless, desperate, destitute, casting themselves on the mercy of others and most especially of God. In other words, do you see yourself rich in spirit? You've kind of got your stuff together. Or do you see yourself poor in spirit? You don't have your stuff all together. That's really the question that's being raised in this beatitude. It's calling you and me as we read it into a self-evaluative and assessing process. Now, if you can think about it, this is clearly an antithesis. Uh, the word that means simply at odds with one another, an, uh, an antithesis from what the world would typically say. If we're going to be in the kingdom of the world, if we're going to read modern media or pop artists or educators or entrepreneurs or therapists, they're going to say things like, believe in you, right? You've got what it takes, Rely on your smarts, your strength, your competence. You are enough. Call on the deep resources of who you are. That's really where life is found. You just need to tap into the reservoir of greatness that's inside of you. You know, it's the old hero inside of you. It's, it's, it's the old top of the mountain. You, you really have, you just are not seeing it and accessing it. The message that is the kingdom of the world is that message. It's a self-help message. It's a, you, might, you might need a little training. You might need a little education. You might need a little experience. But if you can just tap into those resources, you've got all of what it takes inside of you to get the job done. Jesus, as he begins and says, no, really the blessed life is those who are poor in spirit. Those who start from a place of self-acknowledgement that I can't get it done. I can't get it done. If we could put it this way, the message of the kingdom that is not of this world is despair of yourself. You don't have what it takes. Don't rely on your smarts. That won't get you anywhere. Not to where you really need to go. Don't rely on your strength. It's going to run out. Don't rely on your competence. It's not going to be good enough to deal with everything that's going to come your way. You really aren't enough. You are not where it's found. You see the antithesis. Kingdom of the world kingdom that is not of this world. The declaration of the king of Jesus as opposed to the king of the, of the world, who we're listening to, how we're listening. They're two completely different ways of living. Now, I'd like to just pause for a second and say, I think that when you hear despair of yourself, you know, you're, you're nothing. You don't have what it is that you need to be able to get these things done. I think in our day and time, it's important to address what I think is a natural objection, <laughs> that arises at this point in time. And I think it's a fair objection. I think it's an understandable one because it's a common issue. 
It's an issue that many of us maybe deal with in our own hearts and lives right now or, or deal with one of, someone around us who we love, who we're, we're called to maybe care for, to love and to know. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, does he mean that we should look down on ourselves? Is that what he's saying? We should have a very poor, to use popular psychological language, we should have a poor self-image. Is that what Jesus is saying? Or, or is he worse? Is he suggesting that we should actually hate ourselves? We should actually loathe ourselves. Is that what he means when he means poor in spirit? No. It's not what he means. Listen, there is value, there is dignity in every single human person by virtue of the fact that every single human person, regardless of who they are, race, gender, background, um, educational level, no matter who they are, because they are made in the image of God. There, there's a value and a dignity that's reflective because of whose image that we are made in from the very core of our being. There's no way to utterly obliterate the reality of the image of God that's placed upon man, though it is marred, though it is broken, though it is fragmented, though it is fractured uh, by virtue of our sinfulness and the fall. It is not obliterated. It has not completely been done away with. How could anyone who is reflective of the image of God be determined that they are of no value? To say that someone would be of no value, that our self-image should be one that we loathe and should be one that we hate, would be to say we would have to devalue the very image of God in the person. To say that. That would be a negative statement on God himself to go that far in terms of Jesus' teaching. That's impossible. By pouring the Spirit, Jesus is not saying you should walk around feeling worthless all the time. He's saying what you should feel very deeply at the heart of your being is extremely needy. He's not speaking directly of your worth or value when he says poor in spirit. He's speaking of the spiritual disposition that should be the nature of your operational center. You should be a person who rather says, I can't get everything that I'm called to do to get done. I don't have the resources. I don't have the abilities. I don't have everything that's there. I'm very needy. Jesus is blessed are you if that's how you view yourself. If the foundation of your understanding of who you are is that you're very needy, you have nothing to bring to the table, there's a poverty or a beggarliness of your spirit, then blessed are you. Now, some of you hear that and you think, well, isn't that the same thing as worthless? <laughs> right? Isn't that the same thing as worthless? Now, if you, if you, if you think that, I, the reason I could write that, because I thought that when I wrote that, I thought, well, isn't that really the same thing? So you can't bring anything to the table. You're, you're beggarly. You're poverty of spirit. You're, you're of no value. Isn't it saying that, that if you, you are poor in spirit, uh, essentially you have nothing that you can contribute, therefore there is no worth in you? If, if you drew that conclusion, you have nothing to contribute, therefore there's no worth in you, then you know what you've done? You've collapsed two categories together. I do it all the time in the functioning of my life. I collapse these two categories together. Self-worth is tied to contributive performance. I, I, I brought those together. Self-worth is tied to contributive performance. How, how well I'm doing or what I can bring 
What, what, what offering can I bring? What advance can I bring? What value can I bring? has to do with what I, I do. I've got to have something to contribute, something to do with regards to, to value. I, I want to think of myself as being able to contribute something spiritually. This is even apart from, you know, being strong enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. It's, it's even, you know, may not even be quite to that level, but at least have something you know, I have some smarts, I have some goodness, and a few people, two, one, like me, um, at least something, something to build on. And I think the problem with that reality is thinking that way is self-worth tied directly to performance or to contribution. And there's only one problem with that. It's not true. You see, the whole of your being is dependent. We just have duped ourselves, oftentimes in a context where we have a good amount of wealth, a decent amount of health, and, and, and a, 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 fine, a fine little stretch of time. We can dupe ourselves into thinking, I'm really not all that needy. I'm not all that needy. That, that's what we, t- we tend to do. We tend to fall into a, a kind of deception. But if you look back over the reality of things, let's go look back to our creation. In Genesis chapter 2, when man and woman are, are created and they're reflected uh, again in that second kind of creation story in Genesis chapter 2, we're told that we're made of dust. We're, we're made of dust. And then the only way that we live is that God breathes into us. We're made of dust and the only way that we live is that God breathes into us. Now, let me just draw what should be an obvious implication. If you are made of dust, you are not self-sustaining. You're made of something of the earth. And if the only way that you live is that God breathes in you, then you're not sustaining within yourself. You're sustaining on God's breath. That's even before the fall. Before the fall, you were an utterly dependent creature upon the context in which you were placed and upon the God who made you. You were made implicitly, dependently upon God. Do You see, the very nature of sinfulness is to act as if we don't need God. Wasn't that Eve's issue? Wasn't that Adam's issue? They acted apart from the need of God, apart from the word of God, apart from the resources of God, against God. And what did they reap when they did that? Not life, not blessedness, but death and cursing. That's the nature of sinfulness is to act independently of that which you are actually dependent upon. You see, when we begin to reflect upon even the nature of which we've been made, listen, let's go back. This morning, got beautiful news. Be in prayer for our dear brother and sister, Mike and Mel Payne. They're on the way to the hospital this morning. Those of you who know the pains, water broke this morning. And so very exciting times in the course of their their lives. So be in prayer for them. We'll pray for them in a moment. As you think about being a baby... Um, did you come into this world independent? No. In fact, your very existence was not your decision. You're, you're utterly at, at the mercy of people who came before you. And your survival is utterly at the mercy of the people who, who raised you. And then you go, yeah, but I was raised to be independent. No, here's the, here's the reality. You're raised on all the years of investment of dependence. And all actions that you do on your own are built from the reservoir of years of dependence. That's not independence. 
That's all of the investment of all the years of your dependence, which means that you're still dependent even when you're acting, quote-unquote, independently. And you're going to end your life totally dependent. You're going to end your life a lot like the baby that you began. All of our lives is this should be recognition of our deep dependence. Jesus, blessed are you who can see that. Blessed are you who can recognize that you're not rich in spirit, but you're poor in spirit. You're needy. Now, to, to recognize that, listen, that's embarrassing for a lot of us. It, it really is, isn't it? Let, let, me, let me put you in the, in the saddle of that embarrassment for a minute. If you're having trouble in your marriage, right? You're like, well, let's just act like we're not having trouble for a long time until it's really, really bad. And then when it gets really, really bad, only because we have to cry, uncle, we're going to tell somebody, but only one person. Who will, who will get us help because we don't want to act like we're needy. We're embarrassed by that feeling. You know, I'm struggling in my finances, don't really know what to do, don't have the wisdom. Let's just act like we're going to be fine. Let's just keep, keep going until we lose the house. And we go, because why? We don't want to go to someone and say, hey, we're struggling, we're, we're needy. We need help. It might be that you need counsel. It might need you need training. It might need you need encouragement. It might need that you need rebuke. It might need that you need five bucks. But whatever it is, if you ever feel needy, you know what you feel? Crushed. Devastated. You think to yourself, I ought to be better than this. Really? really? What kingdom are you in? What king... Are you listening to? Who, who is the one who is giving shape to how you understand the nature of the human person, the situation that you find yourselves in? Jesus says, blessed is the one who knows. They are poor in spirit. You know, this is why all that embarrassment, all of the shame that comes from that, it's why we hide so often, Right? why we explain it away. We redefine the terms. We blame other people, our parents, our grandparents, this terrible world. You know what all of that is? That's all of that is fi- so I don't have to feel like I'm broken and needy. I have an excuse for it. There's a reason for it. And, and the, the underside of that, the not told narrative is this. If I'd been in a better family, I would be awesome. I just didn't have the advantages of a lot of people. That's the assumption. You know what? That's kind of the story that you tell yourself. That's the imagination. And all the while, you know what you're doing? Putting up defenses against the kingdom of heaven. Putting up defenses against it. Jesus says, it's the person who knows that they're needy who is welcomed into the kingdom of God. Jesus says it's not those who are well who need a physician. It's those who are sick. I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, what in the world does all this mean? Well, at the most foundational and basic level, you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying that the poor in spirit are the only ones who really receive the riches of salvation. They're the only ones who really receive the riches of salvation. They're the only ones. Now, 
The proud and the self-sufficient, can they receive the riches of salvation? No. Why? Because the very premise of salvation is you're needy. So, Jesus, I'll be glad to have you. I don't really need you. I'll be glad to have you as an addendum to my already abundant existence. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It is hard, Jesus says, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, why is it hard? It's it's hard not merely because money is a problem in and of itself. It's hard because what money does to the heart of man is makes you think that you're rich. If you can buy comforts, if you can buy help, if you can get people to do things that you want to do, and then Jesus comes and says to you, you're really needy. Really? I feel very needy. What happens with wealth is it often lulls you into a spiritual stupor and slumber. Whereas you actually don't believe the call of the gospel to neediness because everything else in your life says you're rich. The problem is not with the money. The money's not the issue. What's the issue? Your heart. You see, when you come to a poor person who's begging on the side of the road and you go, you're needy. They go, yeah? (laughs) Tell me something I don't know. In fact, this is why when Jesus actually opens up the Word of God initially in Nazareth from Isaiah 61, he reads the passage about the coming of the kingdom and he says something like, proclaim good news to the poor, to set free to liberty those who are captives, those who know that they need something, I've come for them. That's who I've come for. C.H. Spurgeon put it this way, learn this lesson. Do not come to Jesus because you are fit. You'll never come to him. But come because you are unfit. Your fitness to come to Jesus is your unfitness. Your qualification is your lack of qualification. We sing this when Joseph Hart writes, all the fitness he requires is that you would feel your need of him. The poor in spirit is the only way to receive the riches of salvation. But listen, for many of you in this room who've walked with Jesus for many years, here's the second reality and application that arises from it. Staying poor in spirit, remaining poor in spirit, is the only way to grow into the riches of salvation. And when the scriptures speak of poor in the spirit, it's not saying, feel this way before you're saved, but once you're saved, don't feel this way anymore. Once you're saved, you don't cease being poor in spirit. Now, you are full of the abundance and the riches and the inheritance of Jesus Christ. You're you're full of it. That's fully applied to you. You're absolutely righteous. You are in the richest people in the face of the earth from the angle of what Jesus has given you. But when you do your own self-assessment about the, the, the qualities of what you bring, that hasn't changed at all. All of your wealth has nothing to do with you which means that you constantly continue to self-assess poverty while looking at Jesus with his riches that's applied to you. And you know what fills up in your heart? Not entitlement. Gratefulness. Gratefulness because you know you're a poor beggar. And now you've become someone who has all the riches of the king. And you know you don't deserve it. And it humbles you. This is how we actually grow in grace. You've heard that phrase before, grow in grace. 
Many times we think we grow out of our need for grace. That's how we tend to think of growing, because that's how we grow as a child, right? You grow so that your parents aren't, don't need you. You don't need your parents so much anymore. Like you grow out of your need for something. Here's what's fascinating about the gospel. It's the exact opposite. The more you grow, the greater your increased awareness is of your need. The greater your increased awareness is of your need. You, you, you grow in grace, meaning that grace grows you. But guess what? As it grows you, it makes you aware of how needy you are of it. More so and increasingly so, which if that actually is taking place in your life, what's really going on in your heart? Your appreciation for Jesus is growing exponentially and the riches for what he's given you in salvation and what also is growing, the massiveness of your poverty and inability. Both of those realities are growing together in the awareness of the Christian and so you live in this radical sense of gratefulness and thankfulness for what it is that the Lord has done. You know, this is a blessed estate. How do you know if you're poor in spirit? Let me, let me just run through. I, I'm going to give you five quick things. When, how do you know if you're poor in spirit? When you're in need is your spiritual reflex to pray. All right, when you're in need, do you go, we need to pray about this. Because the only person who can do anything about this is God. Or is your spiritual reflex one that goes immediately to plans, efforts, works? Those may be needed, but not before prayer. When you're in sin, is your spiritual reflex to confess? To confess, I'm needy, I'm broken. Or is it to defend, to explain, to blame? When you're asked if you have a need... You tell the truth. <laughs> and you don't lie. And say, no, everything's great. It makes you know if you're poor in spirit. When you're in need, you're courageous and you actually ask for help. You actually ask people for help. Poor in spirit. And when you're asked to help another, you don't ask as if you have it all. You don't respond in a manner that makes you think you're on top of the world to be able to help this poor little person who can't do anything. You respond as a fellow beggar, showing someone where they can find bread in Christ. That, that's a reflection of how you know if you're poor in spirit. And so you can see in that actually a rhythm for how you grow in poor in spirit. What does it mean to be in this spot? Listen, if you were to get up from this sermon today and say, I'm going to go try to be poor in spirit. That's going to go very poorly. It's going to go really bad. You know why? Because it's not something you can try to do. Like the definition of poor in spirit is you can't do it. So don't go try to do it. That, that is an indication that you're not yet poor enough in your own mind. You think you knew something about it. All right? So don't go try to be poor in spirit. Don't even look at yourself. Don't even worry about yourself. You know what you need to do? You need to look to God. You know, I was, yesterday I was working through this and really testing my own heart with regards to poverty of spirit and confessing areas of, of lack of poverty of spirit and just walking through the rhythm of looking to God, seeing what he requires, knowing his perfect standard, seeing that I don't meet it over and over and over again and letting the good work of feeling my poverty come into me. And then in the moment where I knew I was not strong enough, not good enough, not smart enough, and doggone it, not everybody likes me, 
and I had to come to that term, I looked at Jesus. I looked at Jesus. And you know what I saw? I saw the richest being in the world who became poor for me. That's what I saw. I saw, I saw the one being, the one being who's not poor in spirit, became poor in spirit. He laid aside every privilege of the heavenly places and emptied himself and became to me a servant and obedient to his father even to the point of death. That's what I saw. And in that moment, my heart began to well up and I began to realize, right, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I immediately begin to recognize that's where poor in spirit is found. I can't make poor in spirit happen. I can't go get it. It's got to be gifted to me by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching and the teaching and the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, today, look to Jesus, the one who became poor in spirit for you, and the one who says, if you are poor in spirit, I welcome you into my kingdom. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that an amazing promise? For blessed are those who are in poor in spirit, for theirs is now, presently, the kingdom of heaven. If you can hear it, he's saying, if you are poor in spirit, meaning you have all the needs and you have nothing to contribute, then I will welcome you into my kingdom, which means all of your needs are met. All of your needs are met. Do you know, I stand before you today as a man of God who has all of his needs met in Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ today, all of your needs are met in Jesus Christ. You are, by poverty of spirit, the richest people on the face of the earth. But not because of you, but because of him. We started this service by me calling you to the story of the Anglican judge who's knelt beside that communion table with the the poor criminal. And the recognition is, friends, that astonishment that we're called to is a daily discipline of recognizing our poverty of spirit and our abundance in the Lord Jesus Christ. As you come back to that each and every day, you know what happens? Blessed are you. Blessed are you. And by God's grace, you'll be happy in that blessing. Father in heaven, come and move in this rich and abiding truth of your word. Let us experience its powerful change in affecting us to grow into the likeness of Jesus. Humble us until we are exalted in Christ for his glory and, yes, our good. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.